Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. I think we can uh, jump in. So today we're going to start by talking about the upcoming Ethereum merge, which is top of mind for most people and probably the biggest news item of the week. And then we're going to transition over to talk about the report that came out of the Office of Science and Technology Policy uh, within the White House around the environmental impact of crypto assets and crypto mining. And then we're going to shift gears a bit and we're going to talk about stable coins and particularly the Binance announcement around their stable coin and also going to talk about Frax Lending and their stablecoin. Jack, you want to kick us off on the Ethereum news? Yeah. So, I mean, last week uh, we had the first of, of two hard forks uh, that w- that make up the merge, right? While the merge will actually take place, the expected time is September 15th, 4 a.m. Eastern time uh, is, is when it's expected. So, we'll be up bright and early uh, as that happens. But it's technically like a, a multi-week process to actually get there. And the first of two hard forks uh, called Bellatrix was the first one, uh, which introduced uh, a feature that's called execution payload, uh, which allows validators to actually be able to like functionally create mainnet blocks. Uh, and then Paris uh, is, is the actual you know, upgrade that's happening end of this week, uh, that will be the merge. Uh, for people that are trying to you know, understand the details of what the merge is, what it isn't, uh, there's a lot of different information out there. Uh, I just released a report uh, alongside uh, an analyst on my team, Daniel Gray, uh, called the Ethereum merge. You can find it on the Fidelity Digital Assets uh, research website. So what are some of the things we're watching for later in the week, Jack? The event itself, right? It, there's, there's going to be a period of time where the fork actually happens, and then we have to see you know, if validators, you know, if 66% of validators are online and able to produce blocks. And I mean, Part's the most technical person here, so he can probably tell you better than myself. Uh, but you know, I wouldn't be shocked to see during every single testnet merge that we saw, there was always sort of, uh, you know, you call it FUD going around where people were saying, oh, this, you know, there, there are issues where, you know, clients aren't properly syncing. And certainly that was happening. But like every single time, all three of the testnet merges were relatively considered, you know, a, a success. And so I think, you know, not jumping to a reaction just because you see one single tweet that says that, you know, these clients aren't properly syncing. And, you know, as long as blocks are being produced, like, I think it's sort of more of a wait and see type of thing where there might be, you know, overreaction and market moves in the first 10 or 20 minutes if things don't look exactly perfect. And Jack, before Parth goes into a little bit more depth, for those that aren't initiated, FUD is the acronym in the industry for fear, uncertainty, and doubt. <laughs> so just to uh, to 
bring it home. Parth, uh, you've been watching this very closely. You know, we know that you've got a lot of um, deep research into this. What are you most excited about with the upcoming merge? Wow, that's a that's a loaded question because I think there are quite a few things. Um, I know I know Jack spoke about how smooth some of the test nets were um, and how some of those test nets merged. I think for any sort of upgrade, uh, there are always a few certain hiccups, and I'm I'm actually I'm I'm super excited to see what hiccups uh, do actually happen and how the the core development team solve them. Uh, but I'm I I think I'm fairly confident that uh, it should go seamlessly. The only thing that I would say is that it's really important for us as Ethereum users to not fall for scams uh, in, in this in this period. So just make sure your assets uh, are custodied safely uh, and then be super careful about replay attacks, right? So that's something which I want to make sure a lot of people do not fall victim to. Uh, but hopefully this process would really go smooth. And Parth, can you just describe quickly what a replay attack is? Oh, right. Absolutely. So essentially, this is a hard fork, which basically means that you will have an Ethereum 2.0 or Ethereum proof of stake chain. And then you would still have the proof of work Ethereum chain, which might continue uh, going on. So for those of you who are new to replay attacks, uh, imagine that Jason decides to make a few extra bucks and you decide to sell your old ETH, uh, the proof of work ETH to some random person at a discount. Right. So you use your private keys and you broadcast a transaction saying uh, this is how you're selling your old ETH. Now, replay attacks are when a hacker can use the same transaction signature in the new blockchain and then pretty much steal your funds. So uh, to the new blockchain, it will look like a legitimate transaction. And that's why there could be a transfer of funds. So that's replay attack 101. My, my advice would be to sort of not do transactions during the merge when it's actually happening and and just sit tight because um, uh, going back to what Ryan said in the in the last podcast it's almost like you're switching engines uh, in, in a moving car I would imagine I mean it, it's quite unprecedented obviously what's going to take place but I would imagine that it would be extremely low transaction volumes during the you know the the hours around the merge itself it's interesting how protocols like Aave uh, have basically said that they will disable transactions while the merge is happening uh, for those few hours. Could be seven hours, could be more than that. All right, do we want to we want to switch gears? So, Jack, do you mind just uh, providing a brief overview of the report that came out of the Office of um, Science and Technology Policy um, at the White House? Yeah, so this is the first released report. Uh, there's, I think, a number of them, five or six, maybe, if I'm not mistaken, of reports that were uh, a part of the Biden executive order uh, that was back you know, earlier at the beginning of this year. And all of those reports were due, I believe, September 6th. And this was the first one that, that actually was publicly released. I think it was 47 pages in total. And so quite extensive uh, to actually work your way through. In large part, I, I think it's it's balanced and in, in sort of what you would expect of a, you know, a report on the energy consumption of, in particular, proof of work um, mining, you know, from networks like Bitcoin. Uh, I think there was an overreaction initially from a lot of people publicly looking at, uh, in particular, there was there was one sort of suggestion section uh, and a sentence or two that that sort of suggested. Uh, something to the tune of like executive actions to be taken against you know proof of work mining or potentially legislation around you know 
possibly banning proof-of-work mining. Uh, if you actually read the entire paragraph itself, you would see that there was a lot of caveating that, that went into sort of getting to that point and writing that sentence. It was really like, if we do not see you know, meaningful improvements in terms of the sustainability of proof-of-work mining, you know, if it becomes a problem to grid stability and or you know, environmental you know, concerns, as the administration is obviously concerned about, um, then, then you know, these steps could be potentially necessary in order to you know, thwart damage that proof-of-work mining could be doing to the environment. But I don't think that it was this harsh, like, hey, we, you know, there's going to be legislative action in the next six months that's going to create the, the like China mining ban effect uh, that took place you know, a year or two ago. And so I think all in all, there were, there were parts of the report uh, that you could question, such as some of the data that was used. You know, a lot of people have brought that up. Um, and then there were parts of the report that were potentially promising in terms of discussions around like, oh, this, you know, it, it almost sounded like at times like somebody that that is pitching Bitcoin uh, from the like renewable standpoint. I mean, we, we've probably talked about that a few times of Bitcoin can be this interesting buyer of energy that is right. location independent, uh, et cetera. And so there's positives and, and negatives in the report, but I don't think we should be like jumping to any conclusions that anything's going to be happening anytime you know, too soon. Yeah, I mean, I'd completely agree with that assessment. You know, it felt to me, you know, perhaps even more neutral than I was expecting. Um, I think, you know, to your point, there was a lot of kind of data um, within the report and statistics that they quoted. And of course, I always kind of hesitate a bit, you know, <laughs> you know, at the kind of first glance around the data that's being used. But they do hedge quite a bit in the report saying, you know, some of these calculations that are being used are fairly imperfect because they are estimations. I mean, we've talked about it before, but as we know, like the, the the network's total energy consumption is, you know, fairly easy to calculate, at least in comparison to other industries, just because of the level of transparency that we have. And, and I think the the margin of error that you see is related to, you know, the efficiency, the different types of hardware that are mining, particularly on Bitcoin, and the efficiency of that hardware, right? So it's generally reported as a range, and then there's there's kind of some, um, you know, median value that they, they generally quote as, you know, the number, right. Um, in terms of, of total electricity consumption, I think it was interesting when you look at, um, you know, some of the recommendations or, or watch areas that they, they have, um, you know, it feels to me, and this is my opinion, um, that Bitcoin is already checking some of those boxes, particularly around, um, you know, they, they, basically say that, you know, we should be advocating for, you know, increased efficiency in the hardware that's being used to mine Bitcoin and, you know, mining in general. And we've seen that, right? It's been exponential over the last decade in terms of um, improvements, um, you know, in in kind of joule per terahash terms, right? So basically how many units of compute you can get out of a unit of energy consumed. And we're going to continue to see that, I think, based on um, based on some of the announcements that we've seen from the major manufacturers that produce the, the ASICs that, that are used to mine. So I think that's one area. The other area, you know, they talk a lot about is, of course, the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, this is something that I think they're going to be focusing a lot on, um, you know, and, you know, again, based on the data that we have and which is also imperfect, right? I think there is a, a fairly positive story emerging in places like Texas, where there's a ton of renewables being built and kind of looking at what the intersection between those types of projects and the overbuild that will need to happen in order for us to transition to, you know, a cleaner, primarily electric grid, um, you know, 
how Bitcoin can help um, kind of aid in that transition. So I agree with you. I don't think, you know, there's going to be a proof of work. And again, my opinion, you know, I don't think there's going to be a proof of work ban, you know, next week, next month, you know, next year. I think you'll, you will, you may see some action. Um, and based on my interpretation of the report, I think it will be around kind of data reporting um, to bring kind of a better data set, um, you know, into kind of public view, right, around what miners' consumption actually is, how they're sourcing their data, you know, what their arrangements with their the utility providers are. And this will be hard to do um, because of the kind of just the, the inherent nature of the U.S. grid um, and kind of how our utilities are, are set up. But I think that will be the first area because kind of one of the resounding things that, you know, I saw throughout the report was we need better data to really understand this problem. I think, you know, we, again, we have kind of total numbers, but we don't really understand some of the nuances as well as we're going to need to to tackle some of the things that they've identified as issues. So, you know, again, I think this was neutral, you know, maybe, maybe you know, slightly erring on the side of critical of proof of work, um, which is not surprising based on, you know, some of the other reports that we've seen recently. Um, you know, this is definitely not the last we're going to hear from the White House, but overall, I would say, you know, nothing overly alarming in one direction or the other. And I would, you know, I'd expect we'll, we'll see, we'll see more following, you know, the release of the following reports. I would say too, that it doesn't take too much math to like back out the fact that U.S. based public miners, you know, own a lot of hash rate on Bitcoin's network. And like, they don't want to be inconvenienced and have to move all of their operations or potentially be shut down. And so if there's suggestions being made that are saying, hey, let's get better data, let's be you know, more transparent and let's you know, be more renewable in terms of the energy inputs that you do have, like all indications have been and continue to be that those public miners are going to want to follow suit such that you know, they don't have to face the consequences if they weren't. That's right. So like the the incentive structure is sort of like you could argue properly aligned. Yeah, yeah, because because they've had to they need to kind of align, right? To your point, right? And there is a significant, but it is worth noting there is a significant portion of the network hash rate that's, you know, private companies or companies that are not based in the US that don't have the same kind of directives or obligations even from a reporting standpoint in their public filings, right? Um and some of the ESG reporting standards that are being rolled out. So, I think the report kind of rightfully focuses on activities in the U.S. Because once you start thinking about activities outside the U.S., it, the, that problem of quantifying and really understanding the true state of the network becomes much harder, right? So I think, you know, but having said that, a significant portion of the network's hash rate is in the U.S., right? So I think we'll we'll, we'll, we'll have pretty good data to understand um, to the extent that this is success, you know, successful and they start actually collecting the data to understand, you know, generally what the what the network looks like as a whole. And I would just jump in and, and say that I think it's appropriate to have a better appreciation. And there's an old additive, I think it's Stanley Druckenmiller, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Right. And I think the intent here is to be able to have more knowledge to understand it, how we can drive uh, better management. I think the transparency is key. But I also look at it and zoom out for a moment and say, over the past few years, crypto assets have been uh, becoming more part of the mainstream, not just from a discussion standpoint, but there are also large in, uh, asset managers or pension funds that are starting to create some exposure to these uh, these digital assets. So 
if it's going to become an investable asset class, as it, Bitcoin clearly has to date, I think Ethereum is clearly working in that direction. But generally speaking, I think there is a desire to have some comparisons to other types of investable assets. And I think it goes a long way towards maturing the marketplace if we can have that data available and we see companies that are able to move in the direction that is both beneficial to the digital asset ecosystem, but also aligns with the interests of, of the administration and, and other regulators. Well, it's the interest of the administration, but it's also the interest of the environment, right? And you kind of, you do, you see people taking both paths, right? Where there are absolutely instances where people are using, you know, fossil fuels, coal, natural gas to power fairly sizable mines. Um, but the, I would say equally, there are, you know, companies that are, you know, leveraging all renewable, or if they're not able to do that, they're, you know, offsetting in some way through carbon credits or some kind of other um, mechanism, right, to, to become carbon neutral. So I think it's really about kind of the, A, the obligations uh, or the priority of the company that, you know, that's, that's operating the mine. And I know there are several people in the industry or groups in the industry working on this, you know, some case studies, particularly in Texas around some of the unique kind of grid dynamics with miners that we're seeing um, in the construction of renewables and things like demand response, I think will shed really valuable light and insight on kind of what we're starting to see in parts of the country that are particularly mining heavy like Texas, like Georgia, and, and a few other states. Super interesting topic. We'll clearly want to continue to monitor this. Again, it's proof of work mining. It's not specific to a particular asset. So it's any of the digital assets that utilize proof of work. But I, I know we Sorry, have yeah, other I'm the, topics. I'm the, I'm the Bitcoin miner. So I always, you know, I always go, my brain goes there first. But yeah, it's definitely a good point that Bitcoin isn't the only proof of work coin. <laughs> And right. to that point, those two topics that we just discussed, the merge and this proof of work bill, I mean, there was proof of stake mentions throughout the White House report. And I think that you'll start to get this discussion increasingly so, assuming that the merge takes place and now Ethereum is you know, the second largest network is proof of stake around, oh, why don't we just use proof of stake? What's the necessity of all this energy around proof of work? And so there's going to be a lot of that going forward in terms of yeah. being able to explain the differences between proof of work and proof of stake and the benefits, the cons uh, to both. And that's, I think that's, a, that's really a function of educating on the technology, right? Yep. And, and some of the, the kind of the cryptographic differences, right? And, and um, the, the foundational differences between the two. Yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be a lot of education. I think that's the theme going forward, whether it's for the general public or it's for legislators or regulators. There's a lot of people who are looking for additional information. And sort of along those lines, Parth, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation and talk about some events happening around the Binance chain. And I think you wrote a story or were thinking about this context of Binance converting other stablecoin deposits on their platform to the Binance USD coin. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. And, and maybe we can talk about some of the, the different interests that are achieved, whether it's uh, for Binance itself or users of Binance or uh, even other folks who may be looking at that questioning. What, what does this really mean if things will be converted from one to another? Yeah, absolutely. So, so one of the bigger stories last week was uh, Binance will stop supporting USDP, uh, USDP, USDC, and other stablecoins on their platform. So USDC came out of circle. USDP, I believe, is the, is the Paxos stablecoin. And then there's one more. I think it's TUSD. And so starting September 29th, um, all your stablecoins on the Binance exchange will be automatically converted to BUSD, which is Binance's stablecoin. 
Now, Binance says that this move is to enhance liquidity um, and capital efficiency for its users. Uh, however, I think there's more to it, right? Also, a really important distinction is that you can still withdraw your funds in USDC or other stablecoins, right? So I think from a Binance point of view, this is a really bold move, also smart. But because if you go on some of these exchanges, when I try converting my stablecoin from USDC to BUSD or any other stablecoin, it's a horrible UX, right? So sometimes I also have to go through Tether uh, or, or other pairs. And you don't have a lot of these trading pairs on most uh, exchanges. So it's a good way of consolidating liquidity, right? But uh, at the same time, uh, Circle CEO Jeremy said that this is a move that's actually going to help USDC, right? So uh, Jeremy believes that given how limited BUSD's presence is outside of Binance, more people will now use USDC uh, for its on and off ramp from centralized to decentralized exchange. And so that's going to be more seamless. So I'm not sure I understand or buy that argument, but I'm, I'm curious to know what you guys think. Uh, uh, Jack, do you think, is this the beginning of the centralized stablecoin wars? It's it's a little bit confusing when we have so many different representations of a, a dollar, right? And they all have different regulatory considerations and, you know, transparency levels and whatnot. I believe, Parth, uh, Tether is not a part of this, right? Tether will be free floating on the platform, which is like sort of worth noting, right? Um, kind of interesting. Potentially, you could see like, you know, a, a, an underlying reason why they would or wouldn't be doing that. Um, but I, I do think like it makes sense from the perspective of an, you basically have Binance have an internal accounting mechanism where Everybody can put in whatever stablecoin they want, more or less, and then it all becomes BUSD on the platform. Then you have clearer trading pairs against just BUSD instead of fragmented liquidity across a bunch of different stablecoins trading against Bitcoin and ETH. So to me, that that sort of totally makes sense. I, I also feel like this move uh, might actually put some pressure on USDC and their trading volume. So so it's it's kind of hard to not notice, but this is like really... Uh, great timing, because a lot of people might say, hey, you know what, I'm I'm not comfortable with the merge. I'm not sure if this is going to happen or if it's not going to happen. And so if I have a big position in USDC, which is an ERC-20 token, right? So at the end of it, it's an Ethereum token. I would put it in a centralized exchange like Binance, and now that automatically gets converted into BUSD. Now, am I going to go through the friction or the hassle of converting it back to USDC or do I just care about some sort of stable uh, stable coin, right? So I might, for me, it wouldn't make a difference whether it's BUSD or USDC. Because uh, at the end of it, people just want a stable stable coin, right? So they don't care if it's by Circle or by Binance. So I think it's a really interesting and bold move by Binance. And uh, the timing was also really interesting right um, after the merge. It'll be interesting to see the flows into stable coins over the next, whatever, three and six months, because I don't think people realize how massive Binance is. If you're in the US, it's easy not to realize, but outside of the US, you just look up trading volumes, right? It's huge. Magnitude is larger than, than number two, three, and four. Yeah. It's also interesting how a lot of these big exchanges, both centralized and decentralized, have their own stable coins, right? And then um, uh, I think FTX is probably the only like big exchange which does not have a stable coin, which is also really interesting to me. So I think I think I I think this is sort of the beginning of like stable coin wars, and uh, the next five or six months would be really crucial to see which stable coin really captures most uh, trading volume. 
What, what, what do you think, Jason? You know, I, I think you're right. I think there's definitely going to be a continued emergence of competition in the space. I, I do think you, if you look backwards and say we go back to the summer of 2020, you know, we often referred to as DeFi summer. That's when we really started to see a, an exponential growth in terms of the, the amount of stable coins that are outstanding, uh, new in, entrances into the issuance market. And that's when we started to see Tether's market share erode. Now we see that USDC is the second in terms of volume, but Binance itself is third in terms of volume. So I think that you will see uh, gravity around some of the bigger players, and there may be may, there may be ways that they are able to not just attract but retain market share. So it goes back to the utility and what can you do with it? Is it being used for a store of value? Is it being used to transact? on a particular exchange or DeFi protocol? Are you able to get a, a premium yield for providing liquidity to a liquidity pool based on which uh, of those stable coins you may choose to, to contribute? So I, I think there's going to be a continued value increase. Whether or not the market uh, consolidates or expands in terms of the number of issuances, I think is still to be determined, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, I think this is also a good segue to talk about like one of the other uh, popular decentralized stablecoins, which is Frax. So uh, so Frax Finance just launched a lending market called Frax Lend. Uh, so for those of you who are not familiar, Frax is actually one of the biggest uh, algorithmic stablecoins. And uh, so while you have centralized stables like USDC backed one-to-one by the US dollar, and then you also have, you used to have USDT, which came out of the Terra blockchain, which was backed by Luna token. And this pretty much all went down to zero. So Frax believes in a, in a mix. So imagine like a, a marriage between USDC and uh, Terra's USDT. So if, I'm, if, I, if I remember correctly, I think as of now, 80% of Frax is uh, backed by USDC. And to maintain and tighten its peg, they have this governance token called FXS, uh, which is what they use to burn or mint to keep it really tightly pegged to, uh, to one US dollar. But I think what I really want to talk about is this interesting phenomena that we are seeing where a lot of these big DeFi protocols are trying to accomplish the DeFi trinity, right? So Aave is a lending market, uh, really popular, but it just launched a stablecoin called Coast, right? Which we covered, um, I think, a few weeks ago. Curve is a huge AMM, a huge exchange, uh, and they also launched their stablecoin. And so Frax is probably the, one of the first to actually complete the DeFi trinity, so Frax uh, on the liquidity layer has a stablecoin called Frax. Then they also have something called as Frax Swap, where you can uh, exchange tokens. So that's sort of the arena where you can uh, do token swaps. And then you have Frax Lend, which is sort of uh, a way to pump liquidity in other places, which is a lending protocol. Yeah, I think I mean it's this is this is interesting. You know, I, I think, but not surprising. Right. You know, what they're doing would be like what, a you know, a lot of traditional, you know, financial services companies do having multiple lines of business and offering multiple products and services so that people don't need to take their money and go elsewhere if they want to participating in lending markets or if they want to swap, you know, to, you know, one token for another. Right. So they're basically trying to keep the value within their their individual ecosystems, right? And I would say, again, that's something that you see a lot in TradFi, right? And I think going back to like the earlier point around the stablecoin wars, I guess, um, you know, hopefully we're not, you know, quoted on that. Um, you know, I think 
it's really about the the value that the, that the token delivers and yes they're all meant to represent you know one dollar or you know a unit of fiat currency but there are very subtle differences in the feature set right um, across these different coins and it's possible that we see people use you know X stable coin for for a certain purpose and Y stable coin for another purpose right um, because of those differences and so I think you know, it's in, it's interesting, but not surprising again to see, you know, like Binance, for example, saying, you know, we're only going to utilize our stable coin within the Binance ecosystem. But I'm not necessarily sure that that is like a material step in, you know, Binance, you know, stable coin becoming, you know, superior to the other um, players in the market. Right. If anything, it's just kind of it's, it's a it's a ring fenced uh, use case, right? So it's not necessarily showing growth in some of the most high growth areas around stable coins like DeFi, for example. So I think, you know, there's a lot of variables to to consider here. I'm glad you brought that up, Ryan. And just to jump in, I, I think it really is about a couple of different things. Fit for purpose, right? People might ask, as you said, why might I use one coin, one stable coin versus another? Well, it might be because I want to participate in a circular economy. And that circular economy has achieved this DeFi trilogy that Parth is just talking about. Or I might want to use a, a stable coin because I want to make payments. And one is, uh, has a different collateralization backing and people are more comfortable. You know, when you really start to look at the, the attributes as you talked about, there are differentiating factors. And I think those differentiating factors speak to both appeal, but also utility. And they may, we may see some segmentation along those lines. And from the like protocol themselves perspective there's a lot of synergies you can see by building out like these multiple functionalities together for instance parth mentioned curve like curves stablecoin will be lp units in stablecoin pools and therefore like you get this stickiness in your liquidity pools which makes you know f- fees cheaper it makes you know slippage uh, smaller and so you know, overall, there's synergies that these platforms have. And I think it makes sense that you have originally in early days, a bunch of different protocols doing different things. And then you start to see like consolidation on the same ideas. And eventually, do you get like actual consolidation of protocols, whether that's just everybody's only using this one lending platform and the other ones become irrelevant or like actual DAO acquisition, like crypto M&A or something. We could see that in the future because you don't need 20 different protocols doing the same thing. But sure, maybe you do have a couple of different ones that have their own niche. Uh, at some point, though, I think you know, you'll see some type of consolidation. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, great conversation this week. Really appreciate your time. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily 
necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or used by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.